Hey, everybody, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people with Brad Listy. That's me. You can hear me in this podcast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free, it takes just a few seconds. And then during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. And where it says that, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks, cash money. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites. And you'll get access to a lot of other amazing content as well. Always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge. Get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. right. All right, folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me over here where I am. That's uh, you over there where you are. Thanks for listening. It's nice to be with you. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles. And it occurs to me today, right now, at this moment, that I have nothing to say. I have nothing to say of substance. Nothing. And so, of course, I'm saying something about having nothing to say. I'm at a loss for words, is what I'm telling you. Trying to think of what to come up, you know, what to do for this monologue. What do I say here that would interest you? What would you like for me to talk about? Is the question. Do you want me to talk about my personal life? Like some people like that. Some don't. I hear from listeners. Uh, I'm pretty boring, too. I write stuff. Uh, I chase after money. I do podcasts. I take care of my kid. I hang out with my wife. Uh, what else? Do you want me to talk about writing-related stuff? Is that what you really want? Publishing gossip? Like, Do you, do you really want to hear me complain about book deals for, like, uh, bad erotica? Do you really want that? Do you really want me to talk about uh, the perils of too much revision or the dangers of wanton perfectionism? It seems boring. Who wants to talk about that? Who wants to hear that? Who wants to talk about writing? <laughs> it's a terrible thing to talk about. Your process. I can't do it. I'm sick of it. And besides, it's not something you should talk about too much anyway. If you're talking about it, then you're not doing it. So just do it or read about doing it, but don't talk about it. That's my feeling right now in this moment. So I don't know. What I do know is that uh, I'm in a hurry and I have to get this done. And then I have to get in my car and I have to drive around town. I have a lot going on. And... You know, do I tell you what I have going on? Do you, is that what you want to hear? You want to hear about my to-do list? 
Does that excite you? It seems absurd to get into all that right here on the podcast. So just, you know, just trust me. I have a litany of things to do. I have a mountain of tedium staring me in the face. I have work to do, errands to run. Uh, I have to give my dog a bath. So there you go. How do you like that? There's a specific item. I have to give my dog a bath. Or I have to drive him someplace uh, where someone else will do it. And, you know, I've always done it myself. The whole uh, dog bath thing. I've had dogs my whole life. I got the first dog of my adult life when I was 20. Merlin. (laughs) I named him in the desert in uh, Moab, Utah, in the middle of the night, uh, while heavily under the influence. And my friends were sitting there. We were all in a large tent. And Merlin was this very tiny border collie puppy. And uh, somehow we came up with Merlin. And my friends, who were also under the influence... Uh, told me with a very serious look in their in their eye in their eyes that it was an amazing name <laughs> so we can blame them but the point is uh, i always bathed merlin uh, rest in peace and now with my latest dog walter uh, i bathe him too i feel bad about leaving my dog at some kind of uh, grooming place that's the thing Because I feel like it scares them. I feel like getting a bath is a traumatic experience for most dogs. And so if I do it and there's uh, some familiarity, then maybe it makes it less traumatic. I don't know. But I don't have time to do it today. This is my conundrum or part of my conundrum. So it looks like Walter uh, might be in for a little trauma which is stressful for me to consider. Can you hear it in my voice? Am I transmitting my inner tension to you? My guest today is Fiona Mazel. She is the author of the novel Last Last Chance, which came out in 2008 from FSG. Uh, She is the winner of the Bard Prize for Fiction. And just a few years ago, she was named by the National Book Foundation Uh, as one of its five under 35 honorees. Her new novel, Woke Up Lonely, is now available from Grey Wolf Press. I'm very pleased to have her here on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, here she is, the lovely and talented Fiona Mazel. I'm in San Francisco. I'm actually in Oakland at the moment. I came here last night uh, for for a reading at the Elliott Bay Book Company. I'm sitting on a, a bed in my pajamas. Wait, the Elliott Bay Book Company? Is that in uh, yeah. that's in the Bay Area too? Why do I was I thinking that was in uh Seattle? Am I crazy or no? Because it is in Seattle because I'm so brain dead because I've been on book tour for a week. I was in <laughs> Seattle two days ago yes. at the Elliott Bay. No, last night was Booksmith. Okay. Good. It was the Booksmith on the hate. Yeah, I've been to about, you know, six bookstores in the last week, so they're all jumbling together in my mind. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. That's what I thought. I, but, you know, maybe they had, I thought maybe Elliott Bay had, like, opened up a, a branch. And... Well, no, I'm just, I'm just teleporting at this point. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so how long have you been on tour? Just like a week, essentially? Yeah, I started about five, six days ago. I went to Austin, which was great, for the Austin Fiction Confab. 
which was, you know, a lot of fun. And then I went to Portland. I went to Seattle today. I'm in San Francisco. Tomorrow I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, then I go back to New York uh, to do some teaching. Then I go to um, Milwaukee and uh, and uh, Minneapolis. And then later on, you know, if Boston ever comes out of lockdown, I will be in Boston and then in uh, Portsmouth in New Hampshire. Wow. Okay. So do you have a favorite city for tour? Like, do, or do you find like in some city that you go to, like, are you huge in Milwaukee? Like what happens when you're out there? <laughs> you know, this is my first sort of really big extended book tour. And most of these cities I've never been to, you know, Portland was the first time I'd ever been. Seattle was my first visit. Um, and so, you know, even though I only had about five hours in each city to kill in between arriving and reading, you know, I was able to walk around and see the cities and, uh, that was great, you know, sort of novel experience for me. San Francisco is amazing. You know, I love being here. Sure. Um, am I am I huge anywhere? Um, I'm, you know, I don't think, even think I'm huge in my own head. So, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, you know, I've never been to Milwaukee, but I hear, you know, it's a great reading town. That's I've right. never been to Minneapolis. I was born in Milwaukee, and my wife was born oh. in, in Minneapolis, so I have, like, some connection to the, the great white north. Do you, have, do you have any inside info for me? No, because I moved away when I was like, you know, ten, <laughs> when I was eleven. I can tell you like where I used to build my fort in the woods, but that's about it. You know, that might still appeal to me. <laughs> right, right. That's not beneath me. It's exactly the kind of thing I want to do. I've been doing a lot of wandering. You know, the most exciting thing for me that's happened actually in a, in a long time, which might give you kind of, um, I don't know, maybe unwelcome access to my inner life, was that I, I went to the, to the fish ladder in Seattle yesterday. Do you know what a fish ladder is? Is that in Pike's Place Market? I'm just thinking of people throwing fish around in this marketplace. No, no. It's uh, if you go to the locks. I've never been to a lock before. You know, I, I don't even know. I, I didn't even know what that was. But I'm not making the assumption that no one else knows. But you know, the locks is where they a boat comes in and they raise or lower the water level in order to let the boat pass through the dammed area. Anyway, so you know, there's this big dam. Um, sort of in northern Seattle, and but there's all these salmon that are spawning. They're going upstream, and they're not going to be able to get through the dam, so they build what's called a fish ladder, which is kind of the, it allows the fish to kind of bypass the dam and get through. And then there's a kind of viewing area um, with sort of glass where you can sit and just and, and watch the fish. So I went down there, um, and I, I waited for, for a fish, and I, I waited for about 20 minutes. And after 20 minutes of sitting in this sort of cave-like little space waiting for a fish, the whole experience began to take on a kind of metaphoric quality that seemed so unpleasant to me that I had to leave. <laughs> so, wait, but I, up until that point, yeah, it was a I was waiting it, for fish. It was thrilling. But it, now, is it when you say fish ladder, is it like, I'm picturing tears of water somehow. Like, is there any kind of ascent that they're making or is it just like a stream and they, you know? No, there is an ascent because they have to kind of get up and over this dam. So the water currents, I don't quite understand how it works. And I kept looking for signs that were going to explain to me how it works, and there really were none. But apparently there are these kind of shoots that they they shoot upstream, and then they kind of can hang out for a little bit and rest, and then they shoot up a little bit further. So there is an ascent, and then eventually they come flying out the other side of this of this dam. Everything is quite dramatic. Wow. Okay. You know, if I were a salmon, I mean, swimming upstream is already dramatic, but going <laughs> to the fish ladder must add a certain quality to the experience but yeah. you know they're all going to their death so it might as well be dramatic for them poor buggers i feel bad <laughs> yeah well let's you know it's the natural way imagine if all of us died the instant we procreated <laughs> that would add a certain you know intensity 
to the experience. Um, so, okay. So you go to these readings. Have you had any people show up or had any exchanges with readers on this tour that, uh, seem more memorable than others? Like, has anyone surprised you or has anyone been very strange or anything like that? Well, you know, all readers are strange, but I mean, I've been giving away, um, a lot of swag on the tour. And one of the things I give away is, uh, is a CD I made, um, of uh, songs whose titles have the word lonely in them or some derivative thereof. And I've managed to sell books to people who just wanted the CD. You know, <laughs> CD comes with. I was like, wow, I'm on to something. There you go. Mostly what's the, what's the most interesting about the, about the tour is the Q&A afterwards. I mean, people are sort of generally shy in the beginning, but once I get going and people have asked me flat out, you know, my book's called Woke Up Lonely, and they've basically just asked me, like, are you lonely? Which is kind of a lose-lose. You know, whatever answer I give is, is lose-lose, as far as I can tell. You know, well, yes, let yes, me ask I you, am. Let me ask you, are you lonely? You know, that's a lose-lose proposition <laughs> for me. Um, no, I'm not particularly lonely. I'm certainly no more lonely than you are, but I think that, you know, we're all contending with, you know, a kind of congenital existential loneliness, and good luck. Good luck surmounting it. Um, How do you... But yeah, so... so like, like, actually, it's. I think it's worth like drilling down into a little bit more because, you know, you 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 read a lot about it, or at least I read about you know a lot about it, or I have through the years. It seems to be some sort of echo in our culture, you know, that like, a human beings are lonely, uh, b Americans are lonely, c uh, we're especially lonely in this new era of uh, technology that's supposed to make us more interconnected than ever before, which is like a great you know, contemporary irony. So, you know, assuming you've thought about this stuff, uh, more deeply than the average person, because you've written a book <laughs> that deals like with it grapples with this theme. Do you have any sense of how human beings can effectively, uh, overcome that existential loneliness or mitigate it somehow? Well, that's one of the central questions of the novel is really, you know, a, is it, is it congenital? Is it really something that we're born with, that we're born into, or is it circumstantial? And and that that's the first set of questions, and the second set is really um, either way is it is it surmountable? Is there an antidote to loneliness? Is camaraderie and companionship an antidote? Is community an antidote? Is just um, talking to each other, sharing at a, at a high level, an antidote? Um, you know, and that's basically the the mandate for the cult in the novel is is to assault and surmount loneliness in are, you know, 21st century America, and they try everything, you know, they try speed dating and communes and concession sessions and sort of bringing people together and seeing what is possible. Um, I don't want to, but the novel doesn't actually come up with a, with a solution. And I know that I have a, have a solution. Um, you know, in the end, I think it might be the real, the real solution. It might be just to consider the question itself rather pointless, you know, what does it matter if we're all lonely? All right, so we'll be lonely together. Right. That's fine. Um, and that's a little bit where the novel comes down. Well, you know, and I was, uh, like, lately, I guess, I mean, I think this is pretty directly related to this question, but I've been thinking about, like, human suffering. Uh, you know, not not too much. I don't want to make it sound too bleak, but, like, you know, you just watching, okay, you're right. watching the, yeah, <laughs> it's just been obsessing about human suffering, but, you know, watching the news, <laughs> seeing stuff happen, thinking about, um, you know, global poverty or the economic, the economic situation, uh, for so many people. And, 
you know, there's like a weird disconnect and inequality and, you know, just these things that sort of recur in my mind or things that I'm even confronted with, uh, in my own life. And I'm, and I think I, I've talked about it recently on this show, uh, maybe more than once is just, um, you know, how people can seem so blind to the suffering of one another and, or at least it can, it can seem that way, or they can turn their, turn it back on it. You can, you can even do it with yourself. I think like a person can be out of touch with their own suffering and like what's going on internally. They'll try to repress it rather than actually like acknowledging it and, you know, telling themselves like, Oh my God, I'm sad. Or, Oh my God, like I'm in pain, you know, or whatever it is. And maybe if, if people were more conscious and awake to their own suffering, that would generate more compassion for others. And that would make people feel less lonely. Am I on any kind of right track with that? <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a distinct possibility. I mean, you know, these are two different kinds of estrangement that you're, that you're talking about though. I mean, there's estrangement from, from, you know, ourselves, just sort of an incapacity to penetrate our inner lives and, and sort of contend the, the dark stuff, you know, that, that you're going to find in there. And then there's, just the kind of solipsism and ego that kind of act as, as a dungeon, really, a dungeon to ourselves so that we can't actually raise, you know, rise up above and out of ourselves and see what is happening with other people. And it seems to me that the, you know, the empathic uh, one's facility for, for empathy is probably the, 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 biggest, um, the biggest tell about whether, you know, you are or are not going to be able to stem um, really sort of evil types of behavior. I mean, when you think about something like, you know, genocide, genocide is really, can't really happen if everyone's sort of um, empathic capacity is, is as big as it can be. You know, then you don't end up with something like, like genocide. So it seems to me that trying to hone, you know, that empathic response that people have uh, for one another is really the best way probably of rolling back um, those kind of, really evil behavior that you see sort of transpiring worldwide. If the way to do that is by sort of knowing yourself more, maybe, you know, that seems like one of several options on the table. Um, certainly being estranged from, you know, ourselves is, it seems like a, a bit of a, of a pandemic. You know, how, how you go about even figuring out who, who you are is, you know, I don't actually have an answer for that either. In fact, I think that might be even a harder problem to solve than just trying to get people to understand each other. But in theory, you know, I mean, that's why, you know, that's why we write and that's why we read. Well, right? I was going to say, I was going to say, like you said, there were a lot of different options for uh, improving one's uh, sense of empathy. And I think reading, uh, you know, and uh, both fiction and nonfiction, but books play a significant role in that. In fact, I think that's one of their primary strengths is that they, you know, they, what are the, you know, what is it? They, they allow you to walk in another person's shoes and get inside of another person's consciousness in ways that other art forms can't. And that I think expands a person's sense of, uh, you know, human suffering and the human condition and so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I, you won't get any argument from me there. And I think that's why the decline of readership in America and worldwide, why there's real urgency attached, you know, to that, because there are real consequences, you know, to that. It's not just like, oh, well, you know, we're not reading anymore because we're playing video games and so what, you know, our culture is changing and there's actually, a, there's fallout from, there's, there, there are consequences to, for our culture, you know, when people stop reading. And it's precisely that, is that they don't have that sort of empathic experience. 
I mean, I read, you know, one of the books I read for, for the novel was um, Bowling Alone. I don't know if you've read that, you know, it's Robert Putnam, sort of, and his contention is that almost every single means of civic and social engagement in this country is on decline since the 50s. Not just, I mean, reading is not a social and civic engagement, but it certainly um, can function like one in many ways, but everything is on the decline. You know, we used to have bowling leagues and we used to play cards on Sundays together. We used to, we used to get together and those forms of engagement are, are lost to us. So we don't read, we don't get together. You know, all we do is sit at home and G chat. See, and, uh, you know, I'm, and I don't want to be, uh, this is another recurring conversation in my life. And I don't want to be one of those people who's a kind of an old curmudgeon or who constantly, you know, tells you that it was better in the old days. But like, I'm increasingly wary of the internet and of digital communication and of social media. And, you know, I'm starting to see it all, um, maybe a bit more holistically as consumption, you know, as opposed to, or I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like food. It's like you take in uh, news coverage online or television or whatever, music, yeah. whatever, whatever it is. Like if it's, if it's this kind of fragmented, impersonal interaction, you know, too much of something that's toxic, whether you're eating, you know, nothing but McDonald's or you're, you know, isolated in your room, G chatting, and that's your only way of communicating with other people. Like at some point there's going to have, there's going to have to be a toxic impact on your life and on your, the way you feel, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. That's, I agree with that. I mean, the, the wonderful thing obviously about the internet is that, you know, you're able to access information that you would have never been able to get otherwise. And, you know, in, in that way, I mean, I'm reading so much more than I used to. I have a much, so much, such a bigger, I don't mean sort of, I don't mean reading more novels. I just mean, I'm reading so much more about other cultures. I'm finding out so much more about what's happening in the rest of the world than I was ever able to before, you know, before the internet gave, gave me that possibility. So in that sense, I mean, it, it doesn't, it doesn't bring people together, but it certainly can raise awareness, you know, of what's happening in other cultures and other communities. And that I think is invaluable. On the other hand, it does allow people, even as they're consuming, you know, at this high rate of this information, it allows them to kind of, I don't know, withdraw into their own sort of private universes where they are processing all that information. But there's still something quite isolating, I think, about about the experience of processing and interpolating everything that you've read. Yeah. So, you know, like everything, there's a downside. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's a tool and, you know, if you use it wisely, it's great. You know, my problem is that I get sucked into, like, I, I lose, I lose my sense of uh, like who and where I am. Do you ever have that, you know, that have an experience where like you log onto the internet for an, a specific purpose? Like I'm going to look up this new book or this book that I want to read, Bowling Alone, whatever it is, you know, and you go there and maybe you get it, you know, you buy the book and you're excited about it. And then three hours later, you come out of some right. sort of strange trance and like you've just spent, you know, an, uh, like a weird amount of time bouncing uh, in some sort of like, you know, for me, it just feels like this, like this, um, like ADD, like just jumping from one site to the next, almost like mindlessly and with no real sense of purpose, just clicking links and half reading an article and then jumping to this thing, right. checking Twitter for the fourth time in like 15 minutes. And it's like, I don't know, those kinds of experiences for me are, are the ones that I need to guard against. And it's like, I think the internet's fine if you have the discipline to, to just use it for what you need it for. And then, you know, go back outside or go back to your book or go back to your loved ones or whatever it is. But it's just, 
Yeah. It's a slippery slope for me anyway. Like I'm, I'm very susceptible to just like losing three hours of my life and not really getting much in return, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I hear this a lot. I mean, mercifully, I'm actually not so susceptible to those kind of distractions. I mean, because maybe just I'm easily bored. You know, I get bored of this very quickly. And so I'm actually pretty able to just go in, get what I need and, and get out and then, you know, get on my bike and go for a ride or something. I mean, but I, I also think um, the, a kind of a younger generation is, is increasingly susceptible because that's just all, they're not even susceptible, that's just all they know. You know, they've been brought up to kind of interpolate the world in that, in that way, to jump online and sort of spend eight hours in the rabbit hole and then just come out you know, pale and sweaty. I think, I think that's <laughs> but, really, I think that's really bad. I think that's, it's awful. I think that's really unhealthy and like, uh, you know, I don't know. I hope there's some sort well, of movement. But away there's a reason, why, you know, why all the Silicon Valley people are putting their kids in schools that don't have internet access. You know, I mean, that's what's, you know, another irony is that I don't know if you've heard about this, but no, you know, well, I didn't know about Google this. guys, you know, all the Silicon Valley guys. And I think there's this sort of movement in, Northern California, I'd have to, I don't quite remember where I read about this, but there are all these schools that are just unplugged. And the majority of, their, of the kids that go there, you know, their parents are all internet people. They're all working <laughs> in the industry. And because these people, more than anyone, are mindful of how, I think, you know, this kind of engagement with not just social media, but just with the internet can be so destructive. Not to mention that apparently screen time is really bad for developing kids kids for their eyesight and their brains, you know, especially I think between zero and seven, that some new study came out that just sort of staring at the screen is um, detrimental to the kind of certain cognitive um, developments. Well, that, so, should, that you know, should tell us something, you know, if the, if the guys who yeah. create this stuff aren't even letting their own kids you know, go to schools where they have the internet, then hopefully that's yeah, like, it tells us a lot. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it's a leading indicator. And then, you know, the other thing I would say about it, um, which is sort of an extension of what I was saying earlier is like, just like, I, I just have to ask myself, like when I'm done sitting in front of the computer being online, like, how do I feel? Like, do I feel right. better? Do I feel less anxious? Do I feel, um, nourished by like what I just read? It's the same thing as food or whatever. You know, like, how do you feel when you're yeah. done? And most of the time, I don't think I feel any better. I think I feel worse a lot of the time. Yeah. I, I just feel overwhelmed. Yeah, well, you know, I just feel like there's an there's an abundance of information out there, and I, 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 I can't contend with it all. And I feel like you know I don't even have the time to curate, you know, what it is I am, and I'm not going to read. So you know, I just, I'll get on Facebook and I'll maybe I'll check out like four articles over the course of the day that someone interesting has posted, and that will be the extent of it. Because otherwise, you know, I just get lost, yep. lost out there. And then you know, what I didn't do during that time was read a novel. You know, right. which is what I really should be doing, you know, where I didn't, you know, get out of my house or actually talk to another human being. You know, wouldn't that be better if I just, you know, spoke to another human being? Wouldn't that have been more beneficial in some way? Yes. Um, I think you know, I find it all kind of dispiriting. I want to start a bowling league. That sounds fun to me. Every Sunday. Right. You know, sign me up. I'm there. <laughs> I mean, this is the beauty of meetup, right? I mean, that is the the kind of organizing principle of meetup I think is precisely this that you know let's offer up myriad antidotes to uh, the experience of just staying home alone and staring at your computer you know if you don't have friends fine just come up and join us and we'll go do something we'll go hiking or kayaking or canoodling or you know whatever yeah that's why I you know I think meetup is an amazing 
Um, what I don't is, even know what it is. An organization? Is it a website? Like you go and you just find stuff to do in your area that's like actual stuff to do instead of... Oh, you don't know what Meetup is. Oh, Meetup.com. Yes, they have them all over the country. And you just... You go to meetup.com, you plug in where you are, unless your computer knows already, and then you just start looking for stuff that interests you. I mean, I'm in like six different hiking groups in New York, uh, and basically they just post, you know, like meet up this Sunday, meet up this Monday, you know, meet at Breakneck Ridge at 10 p.m. or 10 a.m., you know, for a seven-mile hike, and you just show up. You sign up and you show up, and you meet 12 new people, and you go on a hike, and sometimes you make friends, and sometimes you don't, but... Is it ever? Way, is it ever? Is it ever like uncomfortable? Have you ever been like, "Wow, I'm, I wish I wouldn't have met up with you"? <laughs> oh yeah, you meet all kinds of weirdos, but then you just stop talking to them and move on to the next person. Right. I mean, you know, there's no commitment there. Everyone understands the rules, you know, of of the meetup. You know, you you chat with people. You pretty much figure you're never going to see them again. But I've met some very interesting people on a lot of these hikes. I'm also in a in a play reading group, and they assign plays and you all just get together and you read them, you know, and that's great. I've met a lot of interesting actors and directors and then just sort of casual readers and engineers and people you wouldn't necessarily think, you know, loved Shakespeare, loved reading Shakespeare out loud in a, with a group of strangers, but there they are. And you, so, okay, so, so you actually read the plays aloud with this group and like you, you perform it theatrically to some extent. Well, well, kind of, but you know, there's, you know, their first readings change. Like you've never read the play. So the extent to which you're acting is, you know, is minimal. You're just sort of reading, reading the lines. Some people are better at this than others, but it's really fun. You know, it's a great way of reading, you know, new plays stuff I've never heard of. Um, but there's a meetup for everything. You know, if you like wine, there's wine tasting groups. I mean, there's everything you can knit, you know, whatever it is that you're interested in, there's a meetup for you. And it's, so that's, you know, when the internet becomes really useful because the internet facilitates you know, uh, an organization that helps bring people together outside of their homes. Right. In person. Does that mean they're, you know, yeah. Does that mean that the experience leaves them any less lonely? Probably not. You know, probably the degree to which they are lonely is unchanged, but they still might've had a good time either way. Yeah. It's like, God, it's such a vexing problem. This loneliness thing. Like, is it about like, you know, I think it's gotta be about output rather than input. Like, if you're going to feel less lonely, it's going to be because you are extending yourself toward others rather than like you finally find someone who gives you what you need to, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. It just, you know, for some people, I mean, for some people, I think, you know, I don't know if I'm, if I'm cynical about the problem of loneliness or just, um, practical, but it seems to me that perhaps there really is no actual solution for it. You know, I mean, you feel unknown because you are unknown and no amount of talking about your inner life, extending yourself, sharing with someone is really going to change that. You know, fundamentally, you just, you cannot be known. I really believe that. doesn't mean that you can't be close to people. doesn't mean that you can't have meaningful, powerful, long-lasting intimacies, which is why perhaps this whole question of loneliness is really besides the point. You know, you can still be intimate with people. You can still love them and feel like you are not alone in the world. You know, there's a big difference, I think, between, you know, feeling lonely and, and being alone. March through life with someone by your side, you can still be lonely, but, you know, you're just not solitary. There, There's a big difference. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't know if extending yourself, I mean, extending yourself certainly makes you feel good. You know, it makes you feel closer to people, but I think there's always a, a limit. And, you know, I think the limit is probably different for everybody. Some people... You know, I'm, I'm, I can't speak for everybody. I mean, some people, I'm sure maybe they feel like, yes, I am known. 
you know, my husband knows me better than anyone and knows me as, as you know, to the extent which anyone can be known. Um, so I don't know. I mean, certainly it's worth trying, you know, to kind of militate against solitude if solitude makes you uncomfortable. Some people, you know, some people think solitude is great. I read a lot of books whose titles escape me about solitude and its virtues. I mean, it's very, you know, Emersonian. It's very American, you know, actually loneliness and, and isolation. I mean, it's, there's a reason, for instance, why on that CD I made there's so many country songs. It's because um, there's a kind of real long-standing rapport between this idea of, like, you know, man on a hill with nothing but a gun to keep him warm <laughs> and, uh, you know, this kind of rugged individualism and exceptionalism of the American spirit. So there's a kind of long-standing tradition of isolation and individuality in American culture, which is, I think, perhaps devolved into emotional estrangement, although that perhaps had not been the original idea. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I always say that the central tension in American life is the tension between the individualist instinct and the collectivist instinct. It's like that's the conversation. That's the like never-ending argument about which one's going to predominate. And you know, yeah. Well, that's sort of like state versus you know the federal government, states' rights versus federal rights. Depends if you're a federalist. I mean, but that's exactly right. That is the fundamental question. Well, and I think like I mean. I don't want to get too uh, deep into politics, but it's like I think that I think that's healthy. I think there should be some weird, messy compromise between those two um, tendencies or whatever. You know, I think that's 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 good. I mean, I think individual liberty is important, but I also think we're all in this together. I think there's a lot of credence to that as well. But when I think about it, like most deeply, um, or at like a more, I don't know, what's the word, profound or. Uh, existential level. Um, sure, all the above. I, yeah, all the above. When I think about it in, in that way, and you start to think about like what we're all made of, and we're all made of the same stuff, and everything to me really is connected, demonstrably, you know, in terms yeah. of. And so it's like, I think like the we're all in this together is closer to the deepest truth than we're these isolated pods. And I think that's part of the problem is that people see themselves as like I'm me. And I'm me on my own and I did this and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't, you know, when, when you look at it more deeply, it's like, I couldn't have done this by myself and we're all together and, you know, our public institutions should probably reflect the deeper truth rather than the less deep truth. Yeah. But it's funny how that kind of miscegenation of the kind of rugged individual spirit and uh, the need for a collective governing body or just a sense of our own community or our own common source, that kind of um, mix of feelings can can manifest in a really um, dangerous kind of culture. I, you know, I'm thinking in particular of, of North Korea, which you I was, I I was going to ask time... you, I was going to ask you about that because it's like it, what's in your book, but it's also when you think of loneliness and you think of lonely countries, you know, it's like it's the loneliest country right now, it seems. That's right. Well, always, you know, it has been for years. But what's interesting about North Korea is that, you know, it is a cult essentially, and you know, they they are um, they are they operate as if, you know, they are they are one unit, and everything is top down. You know, the government obviously controls everything. But um, 
if you think about the ethos of, of you know, or, or the Korean ideology, you know, the, the principle word there is juche. I actually know if I'm pronouncing it right. It's J-U-C-H-E. And the whole idea there is that, you know, one is to celebrate the kind of rugged individual spirit, which seems so bizarre. You know, it seems absolutely at odds with what, you know, the government is always trying to promote in North Korea. And yet, you know, that spirit has a long-standing, has a long-standing tradition of celebrating the individual um, in North Korea. And so, you know, it seems quite odd to me that those two things are operating simultaneously. And that's, and the net result is that we have, you know, this country that is so isolated and whose sense of, you know, its own exceptionalism has turned it into an utterly lonely um, and really just alienated country that's verged, always verged on, uh, some, you know, a real provocation. Well, yeah. the West and not bluster. Well, and it's like, I mean, that to me seems like the extreme celebration of the individualist instinct. And that, you know, when you take it to that extreme, it becomes toxic. And, um, you know, on the other side of it, you have like the extreme collectivist instinct and, you know, the various communist experiments that, uh, un, you know, have unfolded in recent times. And you see how that, how bad that can turn out. So it's like, I think that's why I land like somewhere in the middle. It's like, I think that the tension between the two is healthy and we have to, we have to have that argument, you know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, individualism. Even though, um, you know, Juche purports to be all about the kind of about celebrating individual, but actual individualism is obviously not at all tolerated in North Korea. I mean, right. it can't be a dissident. You know, the, the dissident movement there is, is actually thriving, but it's obviously completely underground. You know, you say one one negative word about. Um, Kim Jong Un, I guess at this point, and off you go to labor camp. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, like I'm, I'm, not, I'm like rethinking North Korea now. Like I, I should, we should say, or I should say, like it's obviously not. Uh, it's like the, the individual collective, you know, like, like the, yeah. meaning the country sees itself as this isolated pod apart from the rest of the world. But the truth is that you know the citizenry is expected to you know march in lockstep, uh, you know, as this collective, and you know the. the the individual voices obviously don't have a chance to speak out, especially in dissent. Yeah, and it's actually unclear how much of the country is actually brainwashed and really believes in um, believes in Kim Jong Un, believes in the regime, and how much of it is just um, compulsory. You know, they actually don't believe at all, but they know that they'll be you know shot or uh, incarcerated if they actually betray their true feelings. It's very hard to know. You know, after. Um, uh, not uh, Kim Jong Il. Uh, Kim Il Sung died. You know, the, you saw these sort of images of people weeping hysterically. You know, sobbing in the streets, and it's just very unclear if this was sort of legitimate, really, actually grieving for the loss of this man, or if they, you know, had to. You know, they yeah. were forced. Well, or they just—they were, they were afraid if they didn't. There's cameras out, or they're afraid if they didn't, they would be punished. But, exactly right. But how do you produce that kind of hysteria on command? Well, you know, it doesn't look heartfelt. If somebody, if I thought I was going to be sent to some labor camp to like chip, <laughs> chip at limestone for the next thirty years, I'd probably start weeping. <laughs> yeah, you might start sobbing too. Well, that's that's a distinct possibility. Well, did you uh, did you ever see? I was watching. I think it was sixty minutes. You know, not too long ago, and there was a a feature on this guy who was born. I want to say in a yeah, in Camp Fourteen. Yeah, yeah, and he escaped and had yeah. no idea. I mean, this is a guy whose entire existence was confined to a North Korean labor camp and 
then he started to what well, didn't he have to like kill his own mother or something terrible i mean they did awful things to this guy yeah he yeah he basically turned in his his parents or right. his mother right right uh um, yeah that was just astonishing that's you know? yeah that story and that life and so um it makes me think, and maybe you have thoughts about this since you've written this book and, you know, the, the book centers on cult, you know, cult-like behavior and, um, I like your optimism. Yeah, but no, but it, you know, it, it's an interesting question anyway. Like, do you, do you have any idea how these things come apart? You know, because they, they inevitably do. And so you thought, you thought, you know, just to use North Korea as the example, uh, and wondering aloud how many of these people actually believe this stuff and how many of these people are just kind of trying to, you know, self-protect. Um, at what point does, does it start to unravel? Like, what does it take? Cause it almost seems like, you know, this thing can seem so bulletproof and so strong. And then it's like one little thread and the whole thing just goes, boof, you know, <laughs> like these structures. But do you have a sense of like historically why these things have come apart? Well, you know, I mean, it has something to do obviously with the, with the kind of budding dissident, movement and people being able to find each other and, and band together. You know, it's very hard for one man, you know, to topple a regime, but it's actually not very hard when it becomes hundreds and hundreds of them, hundreds become thousands and, and so forth. So part of the challenge is, is for those individuals who are um, disgruntled and brave about um, their dissent to, to find each other. You know, I mean, historically, an underground movement, you know, it starts with two people and then they begin to recruit. And there's a kind of a way in which, um, in secret, you know, they managed to recruit more people to that particular cause. And I was living in, in Leipzig for about four months um, last year. And, you know, as you know, Leipzig's in East Germany and the, the Stasi Museum, the Stasi Museum is, is basically the, the Stasi headquarters uh, unchanged. And, you know, the fall of the, of the Berlin Wall, the fall of essentially the Eastern Bloc began in Leipzig. And it started out with just these Monday night meetings. Um, you know, two people, three people, ten people, twenty people, and it just grew and grew and they, and they, you know, until more and more people, until suddenly it was hundreds and thousands of people who one night, you know, they marched on Stasi headquarters and the whole thing just collapsed. Now, North Korea, you know, is, it's obviously a little bit harder, I think, than what happened in Eastern Germany, although maybe not. You know, maybe the clampdown um, is equally equally severe. The thing, I mean, this takes us back, though, to, to the business of social media, is that slowly the Internet is finding its way. I was just going to say it's, that. I was going to say, like, in defense of the Internet, like, this is where meetup, like, North, exactly. North, North Korea needs meetup. You know, <laughs> like, you know they, have, they have very limited access. It, you know, obviously, it's all state-controlled, but... You know, when, you know, the problem is that the Internet is not inviolate. You know, those protections are not inviolate. They have their own Internet. But slowly, 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 you know, images of the West are creeping in. And more North Koreans begin to see that there is an alternative life out there, the more you're going to start seeing, uh, you know, the dissident movement grow and grow. I mean, even already it's become a lot, a lot bigger. You know, more people, I think 150,000 people or sort of defecting a year. And I, I think that's growing um, hand over fist. You know, there's a huge network in South Korea involved in getting defectors out and publishing the stories and then getting the stories back into North Korea so that people on the inside can see, you know, that there's actually, you know, they, everything they've been told is basically untrue. 
So, you know, I, I'm certainly not um, a political scientist. Uh, I don't know exactly how these things work, but I do know that, you know, there's a critical mass. And once you reach that critical mass of dissidents and uh, revolutionaries, you know, the end is near. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's funny. I was, uh, I was, think- I was talking about this recently uh, with regard to Kim Jong-un and North Korea and the Internet, like all of these things together. And <clears throat> it was a friend and I discussing the possibility, uh, you know, almost in like kind of a dystopian science, science fiction, like, um, you know, manner about whether or not like Kim Jong-un has any idea, um, that like the world that he has inherited, uh, is not real or do you know what I'm saying? Like he could possibly believe all sorts of different crazy things, uh, as reality. And, and if he doesn't, then the people who live there, like their entire reality is constructed for them. And then you think about like the internet and control of the internet, uh, not just there, but anywhere. And the way that people use it, the way that people select their friends on social media, the way that people, uh, curate the information they receive or in a, in a darker scenario, if you, if the information were curated by uh, state power or something like people can become convinced of a lot of different things, you know? Oh, sure. So it's just, it's crazy to think about like, like it would be very interesting to somehow have access to the inner workings of Kim Jong-un's head to know what, like how he, how does oh, he see he, the world, you know? Oh, he, he knows better. Absolutely. He had a Western education. He is not, you know, he's been out of North Korea. He knows exactly what the score is just the way that, um, Kim Jong-il, you know, knew better. I mean, they, they are under no illusions know about what is going on in the in the rest of the world and that you know that North Korea is really um, surviving on privation you know that that is the currency in North Korea they know you know but they're I think they're madmen you know I really do I mean Kim Jong Kim Jong-un is you know, he's just a child yeah you know he's a child I mean the, you know their disdain for the West is real you know I'm not suggesting it's not and they really hate you know, the United States, and they, I think you really do believe that the North Korean way is, is better um, and that they are being punished for their way. And if they weren't, if there weren't sanctions, uh, they wouldn't be so isolated and, you know, they would be thriving economically. And I think they really do blame the West for the Great Famine, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't dispute the extent to which they absolutely believe in their own demonization, you know, of, of the West. But they are quite aware, you know, of everything that the Western culture has to offer, what the Western world has to offer, and which they are denying, you know, their their people. So, yeah. you know, in, insofar as, you know, the constructive reality that they have for themselves, um, there is a limit. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, it's definitely not. I guess it's like, I mean, I'm thinking maybe like about a, a, a future movie or a book, you know, about some leader who's born into a closed society like that and, and doesn't have access, you know, or doesn't get the Western oh, well. education. I mean, it's entirely po- It's like, it's feasible at least to, to, you know, consider that, that like somebody could eventually take over a country and like have absolutely no idea like what yeah. is going on. Someone who grew up in camp 14, you know? Right. Right. Exactly. That kind of scenario, just like on a bigger scale, you know, I guess. And that's so strange to think well, about. But this is exactly what happens to people who are born into a cult. You know, when they when they finally manage to get out of the cult, you hear their stories, and they have been so brainwashed, they have no idea, you know, that everything they've been told is essentially a lie, and they're absolutely shocked. You know, when they come out, they're completely disassociated from, from reality and from who they are, and a lot of them have just total nervous breakdowns because they just are so shocked by 
the discrepancy between what they've been told and what the rest of the world is like. Yeah. Some of them you think would just, you know, want to go back in it's some a, ways. Well, it's a comfort. It's a comfortable little world when it's, you know, when you're, when you're in there, I bet. And that's all, you know, and that's how you've constructed your reality. You know, it's gotta be yeah. hugely uncomfortable to have that split open <laughs> or, I mean, I, uh, or maybe a great relief depending on what your experience is. But for, you know, there's any number of these things like religious cults and, you know, the whole deal. So I think some people, I, I have to believe that the majority of North Koreans, or I want to believe at least that a majority of North Koreans, when this thing finally does come undone, will be thrilled, but maybe they'll be traumatized, you know, like maybe it, cause it's, that's all they know. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be a little bit of both. Um, I think that, um, Sorry, I guess I'm having getting another call as we're speaking. I know that. Um, oh, I lost my train of thought completely. Oh, just like um, uh, just people being thrilled uh, and also, you know, uh, unsettled by the, you know, when North Korea finally does uh, come undone. You know how people react to the end of the cult. You know whether they'll be excited or whether they'll be terrified. And you were saying that it's probably a little bit of both. Oh, right. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, a lot of people I met when I was in, living in what was Eastern Germany in Leipzig, you know, a lot of them were uh, an older generation and um, some of them still seemed sort of shell-shocked by what had happened. You know, I don't think that they'd longed for the old ways, but they still seemed very uncomfortable with um, the kind of influx of Western culture. I mean, Leipzig is a completely Westernized city. And I think a lot of them were still very, um, I don't know, just sort of put off by it. And uh, and this comes from people who are living in East Germany. I mean, it's amazing to think that they would miss anything about it. But I'm sure there's some attachment to uh, the way things were, even if those ways were, you know, oppressive. Well, yeah, and it's like I always think about, uh, like, my own sense of nostalgia and how so much of it is tied to my young adulthood. You know, late adolescence, young adulthood, the music that you love. I think this is pretty common. Like, people tend to really yeah. – because that's when your emotional attachment to – you know, just to just about everything is at its height. And maybe if you grew up in like, you know, East Germany in the communist era and you were like 19, 20, you know, like I could see people romanticizing it, you know, it makes the most sense to me in that context, but I'm sure there are a lot. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Except that, you know, Phil Collins is not the Stasi. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. but, you know, it's weird what, what we will be nostalgic, nostalgic for. Right, right. Um, so, you know, we, I want to talk a little bit about you before I let you go. Um, I haven't, I haven't heard anything about where you're from or, um, how you got into this racket. So like, where are you from? Are you, it sounds like you're from the East coast. I'm uh, I was actually born in, in Cleveland. Um, but I, I came to New York, you know, my parents moved there when I was five. So I guess essentially I'm a New Yorker, although like I'm Man actually Manhattan, your parents moved to. Yeah. I grew up in Manhattan. I'm sort of relieved to have come from Cleveland though. I don't know why. I think I, I take some kind of pleasure in being secretly a Midwesterner at heart. Right. Um, but yeah, I'm, I mostly grew up in, in Manhattan and then I, you know, through my first two years of high school and then my parents moved me out to the uh, West coast. We lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years. Um, and then I went to school. I went to Williams college in Massachusetts. Um, and then I came back to New York. I think um, if I'd known if I was going to live in New York all my life, I think I might not have immediately gone there. Just, you know, I think it would have been nice to, you know, live in Portland, for instance. But, uh, yeah, so mostly, you know, I've been in New York. I I um, 
my first job out of college, I worked as an intern at the Parish Review, which was really just almost accidental. You know, I it was the magazine that had the fattest spine on the shelf in my college library, so I could actually read who was in the magazine. And I think, you know, the magazine I pulled off the shelf had Calvino, you know, on the spine. I didn't know anything about contemporary literature at the time. I was like, oh, Calvino, I know him. I guess I'll apply for a job at that place. You know, I didn't know who George Plimpton was. I knew nothing about, you know, the august history of the magazine. I didn't know anything. And I just applied, and, you know, luckily they they accepted me for the summer, the summer position. And pretty much everyone, almost maybe 80% of my friends now are the people I know I can trace back to having worked at the Parish Review. So obviously it was kind of a life changer. Wow. Did um, you, did you, did yeah. you, were you exposed to George Plimpton? I mean, see, I, mean obviously, I was. Okay, so you knew him. I was. Oh, he was great. You know, I mean, I started working there in 1997, and he died in 2005. So um, I stayed there for a couple of years, and I left, and I went back full-time. I was the managing editor for a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I, I worked with him. We were good friends. I was so fond of him. He was such a delightful, engaging, hilarious person. You know, he could turn anything into a story. I mean, he communicated almost exclusively via anecdotes, so it's not like you ever got to know him. But nonetheless, um, isn't that funny? Charming. Isn't it funny how some people are like, and I think too, because he had become this figure, you know, in the culture. Um, and he knew so many people that I think like yeah. when people are kind of expecting you to be someone, you just become that, that person, you know, like, I think he, do you th- I mean, you tell me, do you ever get the sense that it was like, he was expecting, he felt like people expected him to perform a certain way. So he was just trying to please his audience. You know, like with- I, I, mean, I think you're right. That happens to a lot of people. I don't think that's the case with him though. He really was that person. He was. Okay. He, you know, he relished it. He loved it. I don't think he ever felt put upon to actually be funny or be a storyteller. That's just what he was. That's um, what he was born to be. And, um, you know, he loved it. You know, he got very uncomfortable if ever, I think, asked to, to not communicate in that way. You know, I think people would have loved to be more intimate with him or have a better sense of, you know, what actually was going on with him. And he just... You know, he had no interest in communicating on that level with anybody, I don't think. He was lonely. Um, he was lonely. <laughs> yeah, he probably was lonely. I'm, I'm sure of that. But he was great, and he loved that magazine. You know, he – I've never actually met someone you – know, I think he gets a little bit of a bad rap because people always, you know, say he was a dilettante and a dandy and he was a partier. And, and that may all be true, but he was also the hardest working person I had ever met. He worked harder than anyone I know. He was constantly working, constantly hustling to make money for the magazine, raise money for the magazine, and he was writing all the time. And he was such a fine prose writer, and I don't think he ever really gets his due as a prose writer because he was writing about sports or, you know, subjects that weren't um, explicitly literary. But he could write circles around most anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was great. You know, that was a great experience being there. Um, in my in, in 2000, I went to get my master's. Um, after having tried, you know, several other, um, several other programs or, you know, I, I thought I would be an academic and I was trying to get my PhD at NYU and quickly apparent to me that I was going to fail out because of the program, because I was just totally disinterested and didn't go to class. And I thought I'd be a journalist and I was going to go to Columbia, uh, J school. And then I just panicked and didn't do that. And just floundering around because I really knew that I wanted to be a writer, but I just didn't think this was a, you know, an option that was really available to me um, until finally I applied for my MFA. I applied to one school thinking, you know, if they don't take me, that's it. It's a sign. You know, little did I know that the one school I'd applied to was Bennington. Um, the program was very, very new. 
And at the time, I think that their standards were not what they are now. I think they would have accepted anybody, you know, for being such a new program. So uh, they took me and, you know, I started writing a novel and off I went. Off you went. So do you have any kind of like, is this any kind of lineage in your family or your parents in the arts at all? Uh, they are. My mom's a, spent most of her, her career being a concert pianist. And uh, my father is an orchestral conductor. So, um, yeah, the, we're kind of a big musical family. My mom's actually a, a playwright. She, she, she's turned herself into a playwright. She's quite quite a good playwright. Um, but that's only something she's been doing in the last, I don't know, maybe 15 years or so. Um, but basically, yeah, we're kind of a, a, a musical family. I, I don't play music. I can't even read music, which is pathetic on multiple levels. Um, but um, I... I I've known from what it, from a very early age what it meant to sort of freelance and not have a nine to five job and just you know spend your life rather desperately trying to pursue the thing that you know matters to you most. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and do you have siblings who are uh, in the arts as well, or no? I have a well. I have a no. I mean, my my older brother is a is a civil rights lawyer. He's a wonderful pianist, and um, he he writes musicals. So, you know, everyone in the family sort of, the arts are either their vocation or, or an avocation, depending. I have a lot of half-siblings, um, but none of them are, are in the arts either. Um, so, yeah, right, really, it's just, a, it's just the three of us kind of got stuck in this lifestyle. I don't, wouldn't exactly wish it on anybody else. <laughs> you well, know? And, and with regard to music and, like, having uh, a musical family and parents who... Um, you know, I'm thinking of orchestra and I'm thinking of novels and I'm thinking of the weird ways in which various arts and disciplines inform one another. And I can see how maybe just exposure to that through your family over the years might have a positive impact on your ability to put a novel together. There's something orchestral about a well-executed novel. Would you disagree? Well, you know, No, I, I agree with that, although I wouldn't say that that was necessarily how that how the influence has worked. I mean, I, I, what I'd like to think in any case is that maybe I had some kind of genetic, um, I don't know, I don't know, uh, facility with, with language because that has everything to do with being sort of musical. If you're attentive to the cadence and rhythm and sound of your prose, which you probably should be if you want to be writing sentences at a high level, um, if you are able to produce sentences that have kind of certain oral qualities that seem admirable. Maybe it's because um, you have a little music in you, you know, even if you can't play. I mean, it seems to me that composing a score, I, I think that's, that, that's the analogy that, that I might choose instead, is that composing a score seems to be very much like writing a novel. Um, you know, the whole thing has to fit somehow. It has to have, you know, a kind of a, a structure of, of some sort, um, movement, development, but line by line and word by word, it also has to be beautiful. So, you know, I, I'd like to think that in some ways that's how, that's how the influence has played out, you know, on me. But if you go back far on both sides of the family, though, particularly my dad's side, there's a lot of musicians. There's violinists. Uh, there's an, I think there was another pianist. There was a singer. So at least on my dad's side, there's a real kind of, there's a pedigree there. But, you know, probably if I ever have a kid, he's going to be like an engineer. So that'll be the end of that. <laughs> yeah, my great-grandfather on my mom's side was a, a professional pianist. But, uh, you know, no one... Oh, wow. Yeah, so I've got a little bit of that, too. And I think you're right about... Like, there's a, there's a certain musicality um, to good writing, uh, definitely. And um, 
I think too, I, I was just talking last night to a friend about like, it's like music envy. I always feel like no matter what art you're in, if you're not a musician, you secretly wish you were because it's just the coolest one. <laughs> it, like, it's, yeah, it's, I agree. To, to be able to play and sing is just the greatest. I, I wish so badly that I had that, but you know. Maybe well, I've been teaching myself guitar for the past several years. I mean, with really poor results. I mean, I'm bad, but I don't really care. I mean, it is the most fun for me is to sit down and play something that kind of resembles something you know, musical. It sounds like a song I've heard, and that's just, it's so incredibly fun. And also, it seems like real magic. You yeah. know, to be, I'm doing this, and I'm making sounds that sound like music yeah. and melodies. You know, I think it's great. Oh yeah, and it's just and it's so quick to the vein, you know. Like you can just three and three and a half minutes, and you're there, you know. <laughs> like, uh, like exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so um, Bennington, the, the Paris Review to Bennington, you're working on a novel. Like how how long and how um, bleak <laughs> was the struggle toward publication? Like, did you have to go through? a lot of resistance before you finally broke through? Did you have a lot of failed novels Did, or was it one of those things where, you know, it, it sort of glided right through somehow? Oh, no, 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 no. It was bleak. It was, I, I had a, a lot of failures, you know, along the way. And, um, you know, those probably aren't behind me. I mean, you know, careers are long, you know, you hope your career is long and there's a lot of ups and downs. Um, but no, I, I wrote my first novel. It was called agent blue, um, and I had a very hard time agenting it. Nobody would touch it. And I finally managed to get an agent um, that I was really excited about. And, you know, she was really happy about the book. And, you know, we went out with it, but nobody was interested. We weren't able to sell it. Um, and then and in the how, meantime, I'd been working. Well, and just yeah. how, how did you respond to that? Like, was it like, you know, because I, I don't know, I've been through those ringers where you like, you spend a long time writing a book and then you have to struggle to find an agent and then you finally get an agent and then you go out with it and it doesn't sell. Like, did you think? I was devastated, you know? I mean, I was really, I was devastated. I couldn't believe it. Well, I could believe it, but it was, uh, it was awful. But I had already started writing a new novel because, you know, what else is I going to do? So I just thought, well, I'll just carry on with this new novel. And I did. I just kept working on this new book and, um, that was how I dealt, you know, that was my grief response was just to continue writing something new, which was very different from the first book. And then when I gave it to my agent, she wasn't so keen on it. Um, I think precisely because it was so different from the first book and maybe just because, um, you know, the first book hadn't sell, it didn't sell. And she thought my chances for the second one having already been rejected by these, this set of editors was not going to be any better. Um, so, you know, she basically suggested that we part ways, um, which we did, but then I had to find a new agent and start all over. And that was difficult because I'd already, you know, pitched myself to every agent in New York City who'd already rejected me. Um, but I did manage to find somebody and she really liked the new book. And then, um, you know, luckily we were able to sell that to FSG, which was great. Well, hey, um, that's a great place yeah. to land. Come on. Yeah, it was great. You know, I felt just so lucky and I'm so ecstatic. And I remember it was like August 15th, 2006, that I got the news. Where, um, where, I the, where were you? Like, did they paint that I was, picture? I, I, I'm going to tell you. I was, um, you ever, have you ever seen, um, oh, heck, what's the name of that movie with um, Harrison Ford and uh, it's called, like, Working Girl? Yeah. No, you see, that makes it sound like it's about a prostitute. Was it really called Working Girl? With Melanie and Harrison Griffith? Ford and, yeah. Yeah. It's called Working Girl? Yeah. yeah. So, you know that, that scene, the very kind of end of the movie, she's sitting there at her desk and... 
you know, she's in a huge room. I don't know if you remember this, but she's in a huge room at her desk with the like, 50 other desks at her stupid job that she hates. And uh, she gets some, like, amazing news about something like she's uh, on the rise. And all of a sudden, she just stands up in the middle of this room with her arms raised up, you know, in the air. And everybody starts cheering for her because she's getting out of the racket, basically. That's that's a little bit what it felt like <laughs> for me. I was working at tvguide.com. Oh. And I was, I was a copy editor for tvguide.com. And basically what I did was trying to, you know, find the missing comma in people's blog, late night blog posts about lost. Oh my you know, God. So four o'clock in the morning, these people are writing obsessively and insanely about lost. And I was trying to correct their grammar. I hated this job. Oh my God. It sounds it awful. Was awful. Yeah. It was awful. I mean, I liked my colleagues, but I hated the job. I mean, you know, I wasn't even a very good copy editor. So what was I doing there? <laughs> but, um, you know, so I got the news and I just was so thrilled. I thought, ah, oh, this is great. This is going to be the beginning of something amazing. And, and it was great, you know. I I had a I had a great time with FSG. They were really good to me, and um, you know, the book came out. And in the meantime, you know, I started writing another book. And um, suffice it to say that my agent read that book, and she was like, "Yeah, she didn't like it very much." Um, but she worked she worked hard with me on it. You know, I went through multiple drafts and revisions, but it just wasn't her thing. Like she just wasn't into it. And um, I also think she was thinking about leaving agenting. Anyway, long story short. Then once again, I had to find a new agent. <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is great. I've already had two agents in you know, the span of five years. So I had to start all over again and find a, a new agent for this novel, which I did. And uh, she's great. Um, this is for, for Woke Up Lonely. So she, you know, she um, picked it up and then we went out with it. And, you know, eventually Grey Wolf picked it up. So that was wonderful. And I've been having, you know, Grey Wolf, I think, is such incredible house they are really um they're the real deal you know they're so committed to what they do they really believe in their books and they push them really hard so it's just been so wonderful to, to work with them well that's all you can and, ask uh, for that's all you can ask for yeah you know? i couldn't be happier my editor there whose name is also fiona instantly um she did such a great editing job on this novel i mean her suggestions managed to turn the novel from what it was which was a bit of a mess i think into, you know, what it is now, which I hope is pretty good. Um, so that was just kind of a thrilling experience to work with her. She's got just a tremendous eye and ear. and um, So that was great, you know, and here I am. And who knows what will happen, you know, for the next book, if I have to find, like, yet another agent or, <laughs> you, know, I, you know, who knows? Right. Um, but I, I hope not, you know. I think my, my current agent is terrific. Um, but, you know, this is how it goes in this business. You know, I don't, very few people have, like, a, a Cinderella story. Some people do. I don't know who they are, but, but nobody, you know, nobody likes struggles. them anyways. Nobody likes those people anyway. Nobody likes them. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's a tough business. It's, it's tough. That's for sure. And, you know, but you've, you've, you're off to a great start. I mean, a book with FSG and a book with Grey Wolf is a start that I think most people would, would be happy to take. And, uh, I congratulate you on it and I wish you all the best of luck on the rest of this tour and, and, uh, you, you know, so with, with, with whatever comes next. Uh, wonderful. Thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Okay, you guys, there you go. That's it. That's Fiona Mazel. Go get her new novel. It's called Woke Up Lonely, and it is available from Grey Wolf Press. You can find Fiona online at fionamazel.net, and she's on the Twitter. Her handle is at Fiona Mazel, and she also has a Facebook page. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. 
Uh, please go get the app, the free official Other People app, available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's free. Uh, you can also subscribe to the show for free over at iTunes or at Stitcher if you want to do that. Uh, and if you're over at iTunes, please rate and review the show. Do that. Two minutes of your life. Rate it. Review it. Give it a little boost. And, uh, yeah, I think that's it. That's all for now. I'm out the door. I'm going to go traumatize my dog. Please remember that Simone Wheel died at age 34. Is it Simone Wheel or Simone Weil? Simone Wheel? Anyway, she died at 34, and that John Cheever once said, quote, I would go to considerable expense and inconvenience to avoid his company, end quote. Uh, and he was talking about John Updike. That is all for now. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for spreading the word. Thanks for uh, all the emails, tweets, Facebook messages, etc. I appreciate hearing from you guys. And I'll be back again in just a few days with another episode on Wednesday. Uh, in the meantime... Uh, I don't know. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourselves. Remember that you're alive. Take some steps on the earth. <laughs> Take some steps on the earth? I don't know what to say. I have nothing to say, is my point. My brain is not working at full capacity today. And, uh, you know, that's okay. Sometimes it's okay to have nothing to say. Why is it? Why is it considered bad to have nothing to say? How about we end with... Uh, a little nothing. Why don't we do that? Here's a little bit of nothing at the end of the program. Here we go. I feel uncomfortable. <laughs>